It's the Alan and Unwin Half Hour. The Alan and Unwin Half Hour. We've got a studio full of authors and I think we better start. I'm going to scrap my introduction. Uh, all I need to say is um, the book I've got today hit the number five on the New York bestseller list and the authors I've got in are Amy Kaufman and Jay Christoph. So, Amy, welcome to 3CR and Jay, welcome back to 3CR. Oh, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Now, look, we're going to have to set the background of this story because I've got something really fascinating to talk about that we're going to get to, but we sort of need to lay the groundwork of this story. We're mining planets in the future, but that leads to some rather dire consequences. Who wants to go first and tell us what's happening? Ladies before gentlemen, I think. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. So I mean, when we originally pitched this story, we pitched it as Battlestar Galactica meets 10 Things I Hate About You, but they're just <laughs> two of our favourite things. But I think the, the easy way to describe it would be to say that our protagonist, Katie, starts out by thinking she's having a really bad day because she's just dumped her boyfriend first thing in the morning. And then shortly after that, her planet gets invaded, which, you know, is quite the perspective check. And so the book opens with that and is set on the refugee fleet that are on the run from this planet who are beset by pursuing dreadnoughts, a plague that is spreading throughout the uh, the fleet. And it's very unclear to them whether the place they're running to will provide any safety at all. So, you know, it's it's sort of, well, we've got the plague that's coming, so we get mm-hmm. uh, the prospect of sort of zombie-like creatures with this virus going through. Uh, it's the mining planet Carenza, uh, which is being destroyed. I just thought of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy then <laughs> as well. But this is far more dire. And we're just, at the opening, caught in the middle of this sort of invasion. Yeah, so we're thrown right into the middle of it. Now, the unique thing about the book is that it's told entirely in document form. So it's an epistolary novel and it's made up of instant messages and emails and medical reports, security camera footage. So there's no traditional prose throughout the entire book. Which really then makes it um, an interesting sort of journey to venture into the way this story is told. Um and we're going to get onto those points in a minute. Just to lay a bit more background, you've mentioned Katie, Amy, mm-hmm. and we also have Aiden. What? Uh, well, Katie, um, she looks exactly like the scared seventeen-year-old she is, but she's got other attributes. Who would like to pick up on that one? Oh, I can chat about Katie, and Jay can chat about Aiden because th- those are the voices that we write. So, okay, I I write Katie, and she is. She's a 17-year-old and she's terrified, which is an appropriate response, I think, to, you know, your planet being carpet bombed. But we wanted to make sure that she was, at the same time, fantastic enough that she should be the protagonist of a novel, but not a superwoman. We didn't want a training montage that suddenly resulted in her being able to do kung fu and, you know, take down legions of enemies. So she is very snarky, very sarcastic. She has a very hard outer shell and a bit of a mushy inside that she would not appreciate. And very vulnerable. (laughs) Yeah, and that was important, that she should be... She might be running down a hallway with a gun trying to, you know, save her boyfriend from certain death, but while she's doing it, she's trying really hard not to throw up inside her space helmet. But she's also computer literate. She That is her, her main talent, is that she is very computer literate, yes. yes. Now, Aiden, Jay, what can you tell us about who and what is Aiden? So Aiden is the artificial intelligence aboard the battle carrier Alexander, which is the main ship in the fleet. Uh, and in the Battle of Carenza that opens up the book, it gets damaged by the opposing forces. And so it's having difficulties, I guess is the easiest way to put it, uh, with both the concept of what it is 
whether it is a living thinking being or whether it's just a series of ones and zeros and also the concept of what it needs to do in order to fulfill its its prime directive i guess which is to safeguard the security of the fleet so it's it ends up doing very bad things in the name of this concept of the greater good sounds like a politician <laughs> but if, well, let's hope not <laughs> but if i can just just read a little extract this is aiden numbers do not feel do not bleed or weep or hope they do not know bravery or sacrifice love or allegiance at the very apex of callousness you will find only ones and zeros he comes across as a very poetic creature yeah, it's a little bit lyrical. I mean, that that's the style that I tend to write in when left to my own devices. Uh, and so Aiden was a really good opportunity to explore that. But it, it speaks almost stutter step. We wanted to give it a, a mechanical cadence, I guess. So we make its sentences very short, very sharp. And that way it, it ends up looking almost like poetry on the page. Yeah, but then you get error sequences that, that step in. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a malfunctioning machine. Yes. Um, and whenever it comes across a concept that confuses it, when it when it refers to itself as having human emotions or, or human elements, that kind of it sets off those error messages because mm. it, it understands it's not a person, it's not human, but it's starting to think like one because of the damage that it's taken. Amy, yeah. you were trying to... And I, was, I was just agreeing that the... Aiden wrestles with what it is in much the same way that the reader does. And it's been very interesting to us that readers have been referring when they, when they write as fan mail to Aiden as a he or a she. And the thing is, Aiden is an it because it is a computer. But we sort of wanted them to be having that wrestle with themselves and we wanted them to be wondering what Aiden is because the characters do as well. And every so often the characters start to make the mistake of thinking that Aiden is more like a human than a computer and they're usually reminded in short sharp and brutal fashion that that's not the mm. case but you know what you what you read there is an example of Aiden starting to wrestle with these questions itself but Aiden's also capable of blackmail mm -hmm. uh, and all sorts of things because he's going to uh, eliminate people to protect others sort if, of if it, you just called, you it, just a called it a he yeah. ah, <laughs> right. but if, I, if yeah if Aiden believes that 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 will serve its its purpose, which is to protect as many people within the fleet as possible, then it mm. will do what that takes. We were trying to explore that notion of absolute morality, that the notion that this thing would happily kill 1,000 people if it would mean saving 1,001. And mathematically, that makes perfect sense. But if you're among the 1,000 people that's about to be killed from a human perspective, mm. it, it seems a very brutal and callous way of thinking. Do you think of Aiden as a he, given that you're writing it, or a she, or a character? Initially, we did, but I think that was because I was writing it, and it had kind of my voice. So we've we've schooled ourselves to calling it an it. An but it's it. been really interesting to see what readers, how readers hear it in their head and and react. Okay, so we've got some conventional tropes there with a computer holding the world to ransom, perhaps mm -hmm. uh, a virus turning people into zombies. These are conventional. Now we get to the unconventional and how this story is told and Jay you alluded to this before a collection of transmissions messages reports emails data and graphic representation mm. what were you thinking <laughs> and, well you were telling us about the background just before we came on air mm. and pitching it to a publisher what happened there well I mean we we put it together this way this way for a lot of reasons and we did wonder if anyone would pick it up because we knew that it was going to involve a lot of design work on their part, a huge team, the production costs would be very high. And obviously in, in publishing, you know, it's perfectly reasonable for the publisher to be thinking we need to make a profit on each book so we can stay in business, which means the book production costs can't be too high. So we thought we were going to have a lot of trouble. 
And instead, we ended up with five major houses in the US all all coming in to, to see if they could grab it, which was delightful. We knew it, w- it was yeah. different. We didn't know that it would be too different, as in to scare everybody off, or mm. just different enough that people would mistake us for geniuses. Well, <laughs> it would break the conventional model in terms of the, the a publisher would have an outline of costings and turnover and all sorts of things. Yeah. You've added a whole graphic domain now to give the listener some idea. I can't hold the book up and show you, but for example, the Lincoln... Uh, the Lincoln is a dreadnought and it destroys the Copernicus uh, cargo ship. Mm. And what follows immediately after we are told that, eight pages of names, basically, and and a casualty list. Uh, It's got five columns across the page. I don't know how many lines down. It's about 2,000 names all up. Yep. And and so that goes for eight pages, which is then followed by four pages of the sort of mugshots of all of those that have that died, have died yeah. Yeah. on the So we wanted, we wanted to make that a moment. You know, because of the nature of the book, you're, you might be a little bit divorced from the, the ground eye view. So after 2,000-odd people got killed, our editor asked us for a beat. So we thought that we would actually list the name of every single person who died on that ship and follow it up with a picture of them with them and their family and their kids to actually make them human beings rather than statistics. Mm. So, yeah. But it's, it's basically an artistic representation but this goes all the way through the book. You've got um, so artwork, so a picture of Katie in black and white made up of the word Katie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so we get a picture of her. I mean, if you go down the street from 3CR, we've got the Freemasons Hospital, and they've done the same thing yeah. uh, with pictures of families, but it makes a baby. Yeah, it's yeah, sure. beautiful, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we have when a character goes spacewalking, their their text bounces across the page like a... During firefights, a dogfight in space, the yeah. typography's acting the way the ships move. The in, ships in move, the missiles move and things like that. Yeah. Uh, you've got a representation of the screen in there yep. And, yep. and a hypnotic spiral. I mean, that, that all comes from Aiden. So the idea was that because Aiden is one of the narrators in this book, and it's damaged, it's slowly going mad, its madness is affecting the way the documents are stored inside it. So the way it perceives events is visually represented with the typography and the design on the page. Yeah. Um, um, sorry? I think one thing that was very important in doing that was that you give people this information, but then you don't tell them what to do with it. That, for instance, we give people a casualty list of 2,000 names, but we don't say here, this is supposed to hit you in the gut. You know, we really hope this makes you cry. It is just there for them to process in whatever way they do. And when Aiden starts really changing the way the typography happens, we don't say, and by the way, the computer's mad and here's what's happening. It's for people to interpret. So it's a book that you have to be thinking about the whole way through. The book is really a mystery. You're Mm. almost part of the investigation. And as you read through these documents piece by piece, you put together what happened aboard these ships. Well, it's it's sort of a retrospective because these documents have been collected Elected mm. to look back on, on the what happened. event yeah. and yeah. what happened. And then we sort of come to the, well, the, uh, a resolution in the end, which we won't... The twist. So, the twist, <laughs> which yeah. we won't... You know, the, the, the reader's going to have to look at that for themselves. But this allows for something like the juxtaposition of documents, say, between Katie and her mother. Yeah. What happens there? Yeah, so we have Katie and her mother are on two separate ships on the, the fleet, and her mother is on, on one of the ships where the plague is and Katie is not. And so you can see Katie putting all these requests in to transfer to her mum and you can see her mum writing back these emails saying, oh, fingers crossed, darling. And then you see her mother writing formal emails saying, do not bring my daughter here. 
so again, we're not told. We just but learn. you you look at it, and it's and, and the thing is, that's what happens in your everyday life. You yeah. see these different things coming and going, and you interpret them. Mm. And it can be a lot more powerful than telling people what to think is letting them just experience it. Mm. So now we're into this notion we're going to run out of time in terms of the challenges of putting this type of novel together, the collaboration of two authors Mm. on what is really a complex thing, the need for graphic artists. I mean, Jay, what were the challenges? I mean, working, I'd never worked in a co-author relationship before but it's honestly a lot easier and less strange than it sounds um you're you're getting constant feedback you're getting constant ideas being bounced back and forth between the pair of you whereas writing traditionally you need to write you know ten thousand words before you can send it off to a crit reader or a beta reader so it almost creates this feedback loop where you send off the document when you go to sleep that night and you wake up the next day and hey all of a sudden there's more book there and you didn't write it it's it's kind of like the shoemaker and the elves in that sense but but in terms of knowing then the outcome, did you have a, a, a plot sequence that you uh, agreed upon or did it evolve? How did you work there? It was a bit of both. We plot about 100 pages in advance. If we get too far ahead of ourselves, we tend to trip over because things change as you write. But, um, yeah, it, it, was a, it was an organic and evolving process. We would think of cooler ideas and the story would change as a result. But then you've also got the different nature of the documents, which then means a different narrative voice and holding that in your head as well. Yes. I mean, I think that's something where having two people with two sets of strengths can work really well. That, you know, for instance, Jay writes beautiful lyrical stuff and so he did a lot of Aidan's kind of poetic and ph- philosophical questions and I would let my inner snark out and, you know, everyone thinks I'm loving <laughs> write all of Katie's sarcasm. <laughs> but, you know, for instance, my old corporate job where I used to have to write, you know, a document for 100 employees making sure that everybody knew the new procedure. There are documents in here where the ship's captain is trying to explain the new procedure to everyone and that was me tapping my old self. To, <laughs> so Thank every you part of your life. day job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, old day job. <laughs> but then, I mean, working with graphic artists. Well, yeah, I, 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 used to, I used to be a designer. That was what I did for a day job back in the day. I worked in an advertising agency. I was an art director. So I kind of speak designer. So some of the design in that book was actually mine just because we ran out of time. And other elements was just me working hand in hand with the Random House team who were unbelievably talented group of mm, people. We're incredibly yeah. lucky to be working with them. Unfortunately, we're going to have to bring the interview to an end because Jan's got her guest in today. Oh, we want to hear Jan's guest. <laughs> because, because another Alan and Unwin author. Yeah. Um, but there would be things about the reader reaction that we could have gone into, reluctant readers coming on board. Um, basically, uh, there are so many other areas to get into. But the book is Illuminae. Yes. I did I mention that at the beginning? I don't think I did. I didn't. It went straight in. And it's an Alan and Unwin publication. Amy Kaufman, Jay Christoph, thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Well, a completely different genre for me, but uh, just as wow of a book. It should. This book should be on the list for every book group. There's a lot to discuss in this book, and the book is The Natural Way of Things. Well done, Charlotte Wood. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. And I have to say it was fantastic to hear about Illuminae. And I want elves and shoemakers to write my books from now on. I'm going to find some collaborators. It sounds fantastic, guys. Okay, back to the natural way of things, not the elves and the shoemakers. It's nothing to do with that. Let's first talk about one of the characters in this book, Verla. What was the job? Verla was an intern, um, a, a parliamentary intern, 
Um, this book is set in the present, um, a sort of strangely, slightly altered present, but she had an affair with a politician, basically. But he exposed, this is Andrew, he exposed her to a lot of things. Yes, she was, she is um, a you know young woman. This was her first exposure to sort of grand things of Europe and culture. And so he took her on, um, you know, fact-finding study tours as a um, parliamentarian to Paris and other places. And she was very struck by... Um, a lot of the art and stuff that he sort of dragged around to um, museums and art galleries where she was often quite bored. But a couple of these um, experiences completely struck at her heart. And he also introduced her to the poetry of Walt Whitman. So that that makes it He did, as Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky. Ah, ah, I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, Bill Clinton gave Monica Lewinsky Leaves of Grass as a gift a gift that he had also given to Hillary. Well, well, that's a little Which, bit we didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so, so it seems ripe in. with sort of, um, you know, the possibilities of betrayal. Well, then, then there was the media response when this affair came to light. It was also through the media that Verla recognised the face of Yolanda. Mm. What had Yolanda done? Yolanda. Uh, had been involved in a football um, group sex scandal, in inverted commas. Um, the details are quite sketchy um, because we land with these girls in the present of this situation that we'll talk about soon. But um, Yolanda found herself in a room with a footballer and then more and more footballers and ended up in one of these um, group sex situations that... Uh, the footballer's claim was consensual and she does not. Both Verla and Yolanda can remember signing an agreement and after that, everything goes fuzzy. Mm. So where do they meet? Well, they meet when they wake up in this um, prison, basically. it's they, It seems to be an abandoned sheep station or something in the middle of nowhere. Um, they have been drugged and taken here. None of the, and there are eight other girls there as well, they discover, but none of them know each other, none of them um, know where they are or what Mm. they're there for, but they gradually, as the days pass... Well, the first thing that happens to them is they're all stripped of their clothing, their hair is shorn, and they all get to wear this rather interesting uniform. Yeah, they're dressed in strange sort of old-fashioned sort of tunics and um, leather boots and... Uh, and a horrible sort of bonnet that uh, has a very long visor, which means they can't actually see each other mm. in their peripheral vision. So it's part of a kind of system of controlling what they can see and who they can speak to. And it's sort of, um, it's a, you know, the girls call them these stupid Amish clothes or medieval tunics, or and, and they're sort of old, heavy, coarse calico and clothes of from at least you know what what feel like to be sort of hundreds of years old uniform for women so these 10 women they're all on one of their first mornings there they're all shackled together and they walk for hours to the fence yeah there's a big very effective electric fence around this property uh, everything else there is kind of broken down and mm. abandoned and um, not really nothing works uh, but the fence works Yes. 
Now, who is um, keeping them or keeping them on track is Bonzer, and he has this stick. Uh, they're not too sure, you know, what else he has, but it's the stick, and he 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 hits hits them. Barb yeah. got a broken jaw out of it. But there's also the sexually menacing threat of him. But he knows he can't touch the girls. Why? Mm. Well, Bonsa and the other male guard, Teddy, um, who it becomes clear fairly quickly that they're not exactly sure what they're supposed to be mm. doing in this place. This place is run by a company called Hardings International. And uh, the one thing they do know is that they are on a system of bonuses if they don't interfere with the girls. Um, so they, and of course, uh, as the time passes, you know, they're not nice men and oh. they are, are quite, they're very tempted and the, and the threat is always there. But um, the lure of the, um, of the bonus is what keeps them from, yeah, I won't say too much more. <laughs> There's also Nancy the nurse. Now, she's uh, play-acting until somebody really does get sick and she doesn't really know much yeah. about nursing at all. But she's got the freedom, but she doesn't have any um, communication at all with the... Just keeps quite away from these ten girls. And you look at the other eight and uh, then notoriety. It's, it's well, Hetty, she's only 16. Yes, well, she, I think she's 17 when this uh, when she's brought here, but she was just 16 when she was involved with a, um, a Catholic bishop, a cardinal. Um, and so all these girls, they gradually piece together that each of them has been involved in a sort of sexual scandal with a powerful man of some kind or men, um, and they are then removed and uh, so that the men's lives can continue without this annoying fuss and Hetty is one of the girls who mm. is uh, particularly she's not nice <laughs> I didn't want the girls to all be this sort of united sisterhood no they were not and they certainly are not but Verla sees herself herself as different to the other yeah. girls why Verla um, is more educated than most of them she feels Basically that she's quite superior to the rest of them. There's a bit of a class difference between her and most of the girls. And she feels that she was not a victim in the same way that these other girls were. They, you know, some of them have been assaulted. Some of them have been, um, you know, she says, you know, they've been done over. I wasn't. Mm. I chose my relationship. She was absolutely up for it. She's quite convinced she knows that Andrew her boyfriend is um, back home fighting to get her out of mm. this place that it was his colleagues that got her put in here um, so she she feels a kind of pity towards the other girls and she knows that she's going to get out and you know she's kind of sorry for them but um, you know she sets herself apart from them because she feels that yeah, she's she not one of these um sort of pathetic victims yeah she she comes to understand why they might be hated but why must they be kept so dirty that's mm. mm, it well look they arrive in summer and by autumn they're all growing i like this pubic hair and some have never seen it before <laughs> and um there's a group who continue to tweezer and groom each other mm. even without the basics of uh, soap and uh toothpaste but by the end of autumn all the power is off, except for the fence. Mm. So even the jailers are now in prison. And the rules change here. That's right. The girls begin to lock their doors from the inside. 
Yeah, the girls at the beginning are kept in what are ostensibly called the shearers' quarters, um, but they're just this sort of horrible little cells that uh, the girls end up calling the dog boxes because um, they think they're little, little sort of cells that an animal would be kept in. Um, I have to say, I looked at a lot of pictures of old shearers' quarters and <laughs> some of them were horrifying. Um, but yes, after a certain period, it becomes clear that Harding's... <clears throat> Everyone's waiting for Hardings to come. Mm. When Hardings comes, this will happen. And when Hardings comes, this will become clear and what will happen next will unfold. And they're just waiting and waiting for Hardings to come. And as time goes by and Hardings doesn't come, Mm. the food starts to run out and then one day the power goes off and they really fully understand then that Hardings has either forgotten about or deliberately abandoned all of them and that Bonsa and Teddy and Nancy are as trapped as As the girls. Without food. And here we have the rabbits. And the rabbits bring these women out of captivity and into an industry. Yes. Well, they, uh, Yolanda um, suddenly remembers that somewhere on one of the old collapsing sheds she's seen some rusty rabbit traps. Yeah. And the food, they've just been, had this storeroom full of dried food, like instant noodles. And a friend of mine, I really like to cook, and a friend of mine said... We can tell this is your idea of a hellish prison because everyone has to eat packet food. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, the food is starting to run out. So Yolanda decides that she can use these traps and start to trap rabbits. And this is a big sort of turning point in the book where the girls, especially Yolanda, start to kind of go out into this landscape that before now they've been quite afraid of. And it's very barren and um, sort of ugly. And they, when they get there, they're all urban young women. They've never been outside the city. And they see it as this sort of ugly, barren, mm. you know, one of them says, is this the outback? Like, what is the outback? No one's ever been there, right? Mm. And But they start to um, enter into this sort of wildness in the place and also a wildness in their own bodies that start to kind of return to nature. And Yolanda especially into... Um, you know, a kind of animal state. Mm. Look, six months, we're heading into winter and individual characteristics of the women begin to emerge and Hetty gets into religion and uh, Maitland finds a frog and collects insects for it and and Verla collects mushrooms. Now, we won't go into that because that's important. Also, one of the women, Hetty, desperately wants to get privileges and they work out how she can do that. It's the finding of their cut-off hair that really brings them down. Look, um, all through this book, it's, it's, it's sort of chronologically in order, except for two pages in the middle. And we're taken out of the prison and for one short paragraph, we get an overview of the prison and then on the other page, we get two women for no reason have a fight and it's the only physicality between the women we can actually get. Charlotte Wood, why did you do that? The fight or the... Well, taking us away from the general uh, Yeah, narrative. most of the book, nearly all of the book is written either from Yolanda's point of view or from Verla's point of view and at a certain point I wanted to just have, like in my head I called it a sort of aerial viewpoint or something, I wanted to lift right above and look at this place as a whole, you know, look at the, the, the buildings, the girls all together, the landscape as time passes and the seasons and the weather and all that sort of stuff. So I wanted to sort of step out of it. Um, 
I don't even have a reason, really. Mm. It was just a, one of those gut. This book was really oddly written. I feel like it was written from my gut in a way that other books haven't been. But And, and with the fight, I wanted that to be... They, they're playing a game that they've made up, a kind of cricket game with a bit of ball made out of grass. And I mean, they have, they have nothing and they are bored apart from anything else. And I think, and they start playing this game, two of the girls, and then they're sort of observed from a distance that they suddenly go into this sort of scuffle. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. look, <laughs> there's so many other questions but this is why I think this per- book is perfect for book groups. Uh, go on to Alan and Unwin and have a look at the book discussion questions there. I'd love, I'd love other people to read this, especially men, so I could get their <laughs> insight into just what they think about this book. But fantastic. Charlotte Wood, The Natural Way of Things. And I have been talking to Amy Kaufman and Jay Christoph about Illuminae. We've covered so many genres today. So many genres. Is there another... A chapter? So another book in the offing? Three, three more. Uh, two more. Two, two more. more. It's going to be a trilogy. Book one, book two is written and edited and being designed right now. There's lots of work out there for graphic artists now. <laughs> Interesting. And what about you, Charlotte? We're not going to find out any more about these girls, are I, we? I don't think I want to go back to this oh, prison. You don't want to go there, but no, <laughs> no, leave them there. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Cheerio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.